Welcome to the Judge John Hodgman podcast. I'm bailiff Jesse Thorne. We're in chambers this week, clearing the docket with the king of Park Slope, (laughs) Judge John Hodgman. There's probably quite a few people with a greater claim to that. Probably Mads Mickelson or something lives in Park Slope. (laughs) Oh, you're talking about Hannibal? Yeah. You're talking about Caecilius? You're talking about yeah. uh, the, the uh, red uh, b- bloody teardrop from um, Casino Royale? Yeah, talking about Mads Mickelson. Does here. he live in Park Slope? I'm just, I presume that he lives in Park Slope. It depends, uh, I guess, whether he has kids or not. Yeah, no, I was going to say there are no kings or queens of Park Slope. It is, um, I don't know what um, rule by children is called. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I believe it's ruled by by giant strollers. Those are the true kings and queens of Park Slope. Are, are those strollers where you're like, is this two strollers taped together? But it yeah. only has one seat. This isn't like one of those strollers for twins. Double-decker strollers are very common. I think maybe it's Land a Lord. Rover strollers. A Lord of the Flyocracy? I don't know. Yeah. Lord of the Flyarchy? I'll tell you, anytime I'm in Park Slope, Judge Hodgman, yeah, I feel like a king. You know why? Because you're wearing a crown. Yeah, well, <laughs> they give it to you at the airport. It would be rude not to wear it. Uh, it's because somebody will say, like, aren't you Jesse Thorne from NPR? Yeah, it's true. And nobody nobody in my neighborhood has ever said that. Is it mad? You know what I mean? Yeah, I know. But this is, this is my country. This is where I go to see Brooke Gladstone on the street. Park Slope, Brooklyn. Uh, just on, on my street. On my street. A block away, she lives. I've never seen Mads Mikkelsen. It's been and it's been years since I've seen Steve Buscemi. Can I tell you? Can I tell you something though that I like about my neighborhood a lot? What's that? Well, you know, I sit here in my office in in Brooklyn, and I face the windows, looking out over the the backyard of this building, and I see all these other. It's a real rear window type situation. It's a real New York scene. Like I'm Jimmy Stewart in a cast, peeping on my neighbors yeah. with a with a long lens camera, and I hear sometimes I hear snippets of music people are playing. It's very lovely. Sometimes people get out on the fire escapes and they read a book. It's very you know it's it's it's, uh, it's what you picture. It's a, a cinematic picture of New York City to a degree, and I'm um, I'm a little depressed because earlier today, some one of my neighbors was playing a sousaphone. <laughs> So, I've heard this that's person. From, that's from what the Butter Battle book? <laughs> no, someone was playing. Look, can I tell the difference between a sousaphone and a regular tuba by ear? Probably not. But this sounded this 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 bottom felt deep. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think a it was Hodgman's a sousaphone. Hodgman's guide to the orchestra is what we're doing here. Yeah, and I've heard this person before because one time I swear they were playing the baseline from the theme song to Treme and I was so excited the TV show Treme starring Rob Brown of Blind Spot it was so like boom 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 I was like mm, mm, mm. I was really hoping like they would be playing it by the time we started recording today so we would have a new character in the Judge John Hodgmaniverse uh, like you know Susie the sousaphone instead of Leafy the leaf blower and then yeah. they stopped. But it reminded me how much I miss our friend Chanel Critchlow of Pitch Black Brass Band, who played with us at the Bell House a couple of times ago, because she is an incredible sousophonist and tuba player, and she also plays something called a flugabone. I have to say, John, the highlight of all these years that I've been doing Judge John Hodge, and we've been doing this show 12 years or something like that, I'm always glad to see my friend John. I'm always glad at funny things that happen on the show, but but truly the highlight of the entire run uh-huh. of this program for uh-huh. me was that time when I saw the Pitch Black Brass Band uh, huddled backstage around a phone playing a YouTube video, but I couldn't tell what it was. Right. And then in the next song break on our live show in Brooklyn, yeah. uh, they came out on stage and uh, spontaneously played the theme from Night Court. <laughs> they had learned it between shows. They had learned it. They did a song, 
they did a song. It was it was within the same show, John. It wasn't yeah. even between shows. Oh, really? It was they did a song at the top of the show, you right. know, fifteen percent in, right? And then we went back on stage, and while we were on stage, right. they okay. were backstage learning the theme from Night Court because we had mentioned the theme from Night Court. Then they came out and performed the theme from Night Court, which goes hard. The theme from Night Court is great in and of itself. Right. Get a really heavy brass band playing it. It blew the house down. Yeah, you it was don't, spectacular. You don't even know. Until you've had someone play a sousaphone right in front of you at your stomach, you've not lived. Yeah. You've not lived. It's truly spectacular. I think that was the same set of shows where they uh, they played Minnie the Moocher, and our friend, guest bailiff, Gene Gray, sang Minnie yep. the Moocher. I yep. had never heard Gene sing, and she is a wonderful singer. Not that I should be surprised. Uh, her mother was a, a brilliantly gifted jazz singer who was discovered by Duke Ellington right. uh, and recorded with Duke Ellington. But uh, she is a wonderful singer, which I had no idea of. She came out and, and again, blew the house down. Anyway, well, we luckily, some justice. Luckily, Jesse, we have Zoom now, so we don't need to do live performance anymore <laughs> in in the United States, the world for the rest of time. <laughs> yeah. No, it'll come back. It'll come back, everybody. We're going to get back there. And until then, if you want to check out some really good tuba, sousaphone, and flugel bone content and find out what a flugel bone is, Pitchback Brass Band is, is they've, they've dispersed. They're all doing solo projects. But go check out Chanel at Tuba Fresh on Instagram. Check out her reels. It's incredible. We're going to get back on the road, John. This is my promise to the Judge John Hodgman audience. Right. Because this is my one remaining life's goal. We will return to Toronto, Ontario, Canada uh-huh. before they detonate the Rogers Center, a.k.a. the Sky Dome, because I want to stay in the hotel in the Sky Dome. That's right. <laughs> That's my only goal in life. I just want to be in the hotel in the Sky Dome, and I need one of the rooms where you can see the field in the Sky Dome when the lights are on. I think you should be there as long as they will guarantee your safety. Mm-hmm. I would like you to be there as they demolish it. Mm-hmm. I want you up there in the hotel room, in the penthouse, wearing your crown as the sky dome collapses beneath you. And I want you to just surf the demolition all the way down to home plate in your in your crown. You know what? They don't even have to guarantee my safety, John. They don't even have to guarantee my safety if there is a a giant wave of pieces of the sky dome yeah, you know, uh, uh, a tsunami of memories of Joe Carter's legendary home run, or the time Jose Canseco hit a ball into the upper deck. Right. Uh, I will surf upon that wave like I was Bodie from Point Break, and I will. That is how I will go out, just like Bodie. He wouldn't let the FBI catch him. He just went and caught the biggest spoiler alert for Point Break. He just went out and caught the biggest break he could find and died out there on the water. Pointed at it. That's why it's called that. I pointed that break. He let the ocean take him, and I will let the sky dome take me. I never saw Okay. I never saw that. Let's get into the just let's get into the justice. Here is a case from Hannah. Recently, one of our two cats committed a litter crime and left an, <laughs> a litter crime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are litter crimes real crimes? That's <laughs> It's like mind crimes. Okay. Recently, one of our two cats committed a litter crime and left an unburied stink in the bedroom litter box. My husband suggested we play rock, paper, scissors to determine who had to bury the offending mess. I agreed, and he stated whoever gets best two out of three wins. After two draws and a win, I declared victory. My husband chafed at this and said that draws don't count. After a brief argument, he agreed that I was right and he should have been more specific when setting terms. Later, when we relayed this story to friends, they took his side, stating that best two out of three implies that one person must win at least twice before victory is declared. Was I right to declare myself the winner after one win and two draws? Thank you, Judge. Loved the show. And I loved Dicktown. Dicktown. The television program co-created by Judge John Hodgman. And David Reese, bit.ly slash Dicktown. Um, thank you, Hannah, for mentioning the show and attempting to bribe this judge with flattery and praise and plugs. Mm-hmm. I appreciate mm-hmm. that. 
but I must resist your bribe and look at this. Yeah, because you didn't mention IFC's The Grid, the show that I hosted in 2009. (laughs) That's right. You gotta you gotta bribe both the bailiff and the judge. Yeah, and also I gotta be clear eyed and firm when it comes to litter crime. Litter crime, (laughs) one of the great phrases, and one of the great mysteries. How often is your cat not burying its offending stink? It's pretty common behavior for cats. There are a lot of mysteries here in this one. This is a, this is a, we need a real litter criminologist to dig into what's, so to speak, to dig into what's happening in this litter box and how this cat's humans are reacting to it. I mean, Hannah, my solution would be if our cat, Lolo the dumb, dumb cat, you know, had a, a, an offending mess in the litter box that was, you know, smellable, do, do what I do. Ignore it for several weeks until it stops smelling. <laughs> An alternative would be to just cover it up. Just go and scoop the litter box real quick. But somehow this turned into a rock, paper, scissors game. And uh, I have to say, Jesse, you, you play rock, paper, scissors? No, but I play a little bit of Rochambeau. What's Rochambeau? Rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> Same thing. Is it really? Yeah, but you say Rochambeau instead of rock, paper, scissors. And are the are the hand the the uh, you know it's still a rock and paper and scissors? Yeah, I, I, it's it's a regional thing. I think I have never heard this before, and you know I love regionalisms. Thank you, Jesse. You're welcome. I'll put it in my my book of regionalisms. That's what it's called, east of the Mississippi. West of the Mississippi, it's called Best Foods. Carl's Jr. Yeah. In any case, when you play Rochambeau or any sort of tournée, and it's a best two out of three, what does that mean to you? You have to win two. You have to win two. You have to win two. This is obvious, Right. Absolutely. What is happening here, Hannah? Hannah's weaseling. Hannah is weaseling, and clearly Hannah is an effective self-advocate, and that this has gone on for a long time. Because after she clearly did not win the two out of three and declared victory on two draws and one win, and her husband chafed, that's a fair chafe. That's obviously a fair chafe. Everyone knows you got to win two out of three. That's why it's called two out of three. But then a brief argument ensued, and then he agreed that you were right, Hannah? What is going on in your relationship that you are able to force him into agreement to something that is obviously untrue? He should have been more specific when setting terms. Boy, oh boy, the psychological power you have over this guy. It's very, very... Very intense and deserves some interrogation on your part. Uh, No wonder your friends agreed with your husband. Best two out of three implies that one person must win at least twice before victory is declared. So what I would say is talk to your vet to make sure there's no problem with your cat not burying its poops. Or... Uh, talk to Sarah, our friend who is the, uh, the, the, the cat groomer and cat behavior expert up there in, uh, in Toronto, Canada at Cleopatra Cat Services. Cleopatra, sorry, Cleopatra. Cleopatra.ca. Just to make sure everything's going okay there. And then I would talk to your husband and you guys should have a conversation about why it was so easy for you to trick him into believing that you were right about something that you were very wrong about. This is of concern to me. Here's something from Julie. I did not know I was from Appalachia until my now spouse told me I was. I thought I was from the East Coast, which you'll probably find laughable when you find out that I'm from Uniontown, Pennsylvania, 10 miles from the West Virginia border. Mm. My Mm -hmm. spouse, Will, is a graduate of the judge's alma mater. We should explain for people who don't know that Judge Hodgman went to DeVry Technical Institute Mm -hmm. and knows the East Coast. One of Will's favorite activities is to comment when my hick ways are showing. Mm. 
Long ago, I thought I had rid myself of all my southwestern Pennsylvania-isms, like saying, my clothes need washed. But there is one which may remain. Please issue a judgment on whether it's correct to say I never ate a tomato until I was 19 years old. Will is convinced this is a holdout Appalachism. He says, if you've never eaten a tomato, you have never eaten a tomato, and that fact cannot be changed by eating a tomato later. Whoa. Is it better to say I had not eaten a tomato until I was 19 years old? Hmm. Two questions here, John. Yeah. One is, is it correct? One is, is it better? I think it comes down to correctness, right? Is it correct? Is it more correct to say I had not eaten a tomato until I was 19 years old? Is Julie incorrect to say I never ate a tomato till I was 19 years old? Now, you said that I went to DeVry Technical College because you're making a little joke at my, uh, at my uh, stuffy Ivy League expense. Because, of course, I went to Yale University, a four-year accredited college in Southern Connecticut. And I guess that Will did too. And I have to say, I never disliked a fellow Yale grad until today. Okay, look, I know Julie a little bit. We've exchanged emails from time to time about a lot of different things. Uh, I know she's she is a wonderful person. I trust that her husband is as well. I know that they will take this in good spirit. Uh, Hick is a classist slur. Please don't use that term. And please don't internalize it, Julie. There is zero wrong with your having grown up in Uniontown, Pennsylvania. And there is zero reason for you to feel scrutinized uh, by your Yaley husband for the things that, that you grew up saying. I'm a fan of regionalisms. You know what I mean? I mean, that's what yeah. we call them here in New England, the region of New England that is the southeastern part of Canada. Saying my clothes need washed is cool. That's really good. That's great. That's really fun. I'm really into that. I might could start saying that now. Yeah. I never said it before today. You know, I understand what Will is getting at. And perhaps grammatically he has a point, but it took me on multiple readings of the two different phrases to discern what the difference was between I never ate a tomato until I was 19 and I had not eaten a tomato until I was 19. There is, I guess, a grammatical difference, but I never ate a tomato until I was 19. Sounds extremely natural. It's obviously colloquial. It's perfectly understandable. And there's no reason to split this hair. If you're both, you know, just kind of like word and grammar and usage nerds, I guess it could be fun to debate. But I do take issue when, when grammar is used as a cudgel or to point out uh, a lack of education or to make someone else feel uh, uh, self-conscious about the way they express themselves because it's it's gross, Will. Sorry. And the thing that happens when you're so busy correcting someone else's grammar is you're missing what they are saying, which the which is that they never ate a tomato till they were 19 years old. That's an incredible story. That's a story. Yeah. There's a lot going on in there. They're like, well, wow. Why not? Why didn't you? What what was going on in your life? You didn't eat tomatoes till you're 19. Was it a cultural thing? Is it a regional thing? What were you growing up like? What was it like when you first ate a tomato? What was it like when you? What what did it taste like when you finally ate it? Why didn't you call it a tomato? By the way. So you know, listen listen to what people are saying when they're saying their things, and don't get so hung up on trying to scrub someone's appalachisms out of them because regionalism in language is one of the things that makes language fun and expressive. I don't, you know, sometimes I say on this show, probably instead of probably or probably. And I had someone write in and thank you listener for listening. But they're like, I, I noticed you doing this and I suspect that it's probably it's sorry. And I suspect that it's probably you resisting the fanciness of your Yale education. It's like, no, 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 no. This is me imitating my wife who grew up saying "prolly," because she grew up in Atlanta. I don't know why she says "prolly." I just like the way it sounds. I mean, you have That's to fun. be careful when you when you adopt different regionalisms too, because you don't want to be inappropriately culturally appropriative, right? 
But what you really want to do when people are talking is not listening to how they're saying it, but listening to what they're saying. And I say you should go ahead and say, I never ate a tomato until I was 19. I think you should say, I never ate a tomato until I was 19 years old. Et, E-T. Don't let Will push you out of that one because et, E-T, that's a playable Scrabble word. You go get him. Go get him, Julie. Do you think we have Judge John Hodgman listeners who have never eaten a tomato? Of course. I mean, we have at least a few listeners who live in Europe before tomatoes were introduced from the new world. <laughs> but leaving leaving those people aside, pre-Cortez people, do you think we have listeners who have never eaten a tomato? Yes. I know for a fact because I am now routinely getting emails from eight-year-olds and 11-and-a-half-year-olds that statistically speaking, there are probably some, as, ad as advanced and sophisticated as they are, to write me beseeching letters on email, on email of all things. They're not coming at me v via uh, TikTok. They're like, uh, they're like 35 year olds. I'll send an email to Judge John Hodgman and they're eight, 11 years old. We'll hear from them later. But statistically speaking, I bet even though they're very, very sophisticated in terms of their correspondence, even old fogeyish, probably a bunch of them haven't eaten a bunch of foods because you know kids. what about an adult do you think there are adults who listen to our show who have never eaten a tomato of course of course if you've never eaten a tomato email hodgman at maximumfun.org whoa how dare you how old you are how dare you why you've never eaten a tomato you ba you're basically opening the floodgates and All right. look you can tell us if you've there's two categories here one is i've never eaten a tomato product so that includes Pizza sauce, pasta sauce, and ketchup, I think, are going to be your top categories uh, where they're coming up for people. And then secondarily, I've never eaten a piece of tomato, a, a whole piece of tomato in, in some context, like a like a green salad. Yeah. Let's be, look, if you're going to open this door, I, I do want to be perfectly clear. We are, we are asking about, have you ever at a slice of tomato? either on its own or on a sandwich. I don't want to be hearing about, as Jesse was barbecue saying, sauce. barbecue sauce or ketchup or whatever. You know what I mean. That's the point. You know what I mean. And I will open the flood. I would open these floodgates even further. Make it any food. If there's a common food that you have not, that you did not eat until later in your life that is surprising to people, tell me about it. I'd like to know your story with it. We're going to take a quick break to hear from this week's partner. We'll be back with more cases to clear from the docket on the Judge John Hodgman podcast. I'm already, how am I already getting emails on this? We haven't even posted this yet. You're listening to Judge John Hodgman. I'm bailiff Jesse Thorne. Of course, the Judge John Hodgman podcast always brought to you by you, the members of MaximumFun.org. Thanks to everybody who's gone to MaximumFun.org slash join, and you can join them by going to MaximumFun.org slash join. The Judge John Hodgman podcast is also brought to you this week by Aura. A-U-R-A. It's a simple but meaningful gift that you can give your mom or your dad or your step-grandparent or your uncle or your friend or anyone that you want to keep connected in your life who might not live near you. It's a digital picture frame from Aura. It's perfect for sharing pics of all the things that those friends can't be there for, from family vacations to grandkids' graduation to whatever. I have one of these, and I got one for my dad, and I got one for my mother-in-law, and it's amazing. We look at the photos all day long, and we're able to easily update their aura frames so they see all the latest pictures from our lives as well. It comes with unlimited storage, simple controls on the frame, you can upload as many photos as you want and your mom or your dad or your stepdad or your stepmom or your friend or whatever can pick the perfect one. And it takes only about two minutes to set up. Seriously. See why it was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, uh, The Strategist and Wired Magazine. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. For a limited time, listeners can get $20 off their best-selling frame with code Hodgman. That's A-U-R-A frames.com, promo code Hodgman. Terms and conditions apply.
The Judge John Hodgman podcast is also brought to you this week by Babbel. Okay, it's 2020, 2024. Oh, if hindsight were 2020, I I don't know what I would have done differently. All I know is that I'm taking every day in this year and trying to get better a little bit every day. That's what you do. That's the way progress is made, step by step, day by day, bird by bird. And that's the way it is when you're learning anything, especially a new language with Babbel. And if Babbel can help you start speaking language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in the rest of this whole year. Don't pay hundreds of dollars to private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts, real human beings, to help you start speaking a new language in as little as one, two, three weeks. Studies from Michigan State University, Yale University, and others continue to prove that Babbel is better. And that's not just the Yale football team putting their thumb on the scale because they love learning Indonesian from Babbel. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Take that, Yale, I guess. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but this is only for our listeners at babbel.com slash Hodgman. Welcome back to the Judge John Hodgman podcast. We're clearing the docket this week. We have a case here from Teresa. My partner will frequently flash his headlights at cars who are changing lanes ahead of him. Then he becomes angry when they cut him off. He believes he is communicating to other drivers, don't go, I'm driving here. That's a, like, 1978 New York movie. Hey, I'm driving here. Don't go, I'm driving here. He also flashes his headlights at people who are waiting to pull out of driveways or roads, and this causes great confusion. But I was raised by a trucker who taught me the etiquette of flashing headlights means you go or you're clear to change lanes. We have discussed this with many people, and nearly everyone agrees with me. The one glaring exception is our friend who is originally from Argentina. I am from the great Commonwealth of Massachusetts which maybe is in Argentina. I don't know where that is. Right. And my partner is from Colorado. Is it possible that there are regional differences within the U.S. as well? Jesse, do you, do you know one of the funnest things I ever found out from Wikipedia was? I don't know. Because I've, I've looked up the etiquette of flashing headlights before. Because it is fairly mysterious. Because it's hard to know what the person means. And I learned from Wikipedia that certain car manufacturers in their manuals for the cars refer to refer to this as using the optical horn. <laughs> my optical horn is just a beam of light that emanates from the center of my forehead. I know. What the, th- the sad thing about it is when you come to Park Slope, your crown covers it up. But here, I... Uh, it is it is mysterious because it is not fully agreed upon what flashing headlights indicates. And what I was very interested in this letter because I was in Argentina when I was twenty years old. You can you can read about how I scammed money from the Yale Spanish department to go to Buenos Aires to walk around and have deep thoughts, feel guilty about it for the rest of my life in my book medallion status. And one thing I noticed there was that taxi cabs would flash their high beams to tell you to get out of their way. And that's because the streets were very narrow and they would come barreling down them. And I don't think that they had stop signs. So they were flashing those lights to create a visual cue that someone is coming. Be careful. And I get, and I gathered from this Wikipedia page that this is true also in other countries like the Philippines and Bangladesh. But on the East Coast, it definitely means you go ahead. Unless you're flashing your lights behind someone in the left lane, in the passing lane, and you're a jerk. And you're telling them, you're going too slow. I want to go faster. Get out of my way. But those are the two possible meanings. In the East Coast, at least as far as I know. Now, I know that you're a West Coast driver. We, we have, we're glad to say, in the Judge John Hodge Maniverse an automobile expert, our friend, the comedian and car expert, Rhea Butcher, we've had on the show to talk about car talk before. 
And they are both a Los Angelino and an Ohioan. So I asked them for their thoughts on this dispute, and here's what they said. Hey, John and Jesse, Rhea Butcher here. Um, thank you so much for considering me for this ruling. I am honored to bring this ruling to Judge John Hodgman. Uh, for me, flashing high beams primarily serves to let a driver know their lights aren't on at night. That is what I was taught. That is my first meaning of flashing high beams. My secondary meanings, uh, meaning the ones I've learned after and continue to use, are to go ahead at an intersection and then also to let oncoming drivers on a freeway situation know that highway patrol or police are up ahead with radar guns in their direction and you should slow down. This is the most stealthy definition and as such, the most rewarding. This is the one I like to use the most and as always, a cap. But in regards to the complaint, I think this man honestly just has to realize that his use of his high beams, where he currently lives, is actually causing more damage and confusion than good. I have no idea if it's regional, but will say that I think most uses of high beams, horns, all these little intricacies, which I thoroughly enjoy, tend to be incredibly regional. But he now doesn't live in the region that he used to live. Uh, and honestly, it doesn't really matter to me. He is using his high beams in situations where a horn honk is much more appropriate, i.e. someone backing out, something like that. We have blinkers to signal turns and brakes to signal stops, but there are no signals to single I'm going because the going itself is the signal. So my ruling is this man's use of the high beams is causing confusion on the roadway and he must adjust to his new surroundings and his use of high beams. If he must use anything, it needs to be the horn, and that should be used as sparingly as possible. Nobody likes a horn. Yeah, nobody likes a horn. You horn, right, Jesse? My experience, John, comports with Ria's. As a an Angelino originally from the San Francisco Bay Area, a lifelong Californian, Right. I would say the the place where this comes up the most is when someone's lights aren't on at dusk or at night, right? Uh, which, <laughs> which happens a lot in Los Angeles. I don't know why it happens so much more in Los Angeles than it did when I was driving in Northern California, but it is astonishing. I know Given why. That Do you want to know why? Almost all cars have automatic headlights at this point. I don't know how it's possible that so many people have their lights off at, at, at dusk and at night. I know why. They forget to turn them on because they're listening to podcasts. There you go. Yeah. Uh, but I would say besides that, the the situations in my life where this has come up most frequently are there's a jerk tailgating me who's mad that I'm going 10 miles over the speed limit and not faster. Right. Uh, and occasionally someone who is trying to get my attention to indicate something unusual. So I don't think I would expect that if someone flashed their lights at me, I would immediately pull out in front of them right? from my driveway, for example. But if they flashed their lights at me, I saw that, and then they gave me a little wave or slowed to a stop or something like that, I would know they were gathering my attention so that to, to suggest that I could do something. It's, it's an attention getter. And the problem is no one knows what you're trying to draw attention to. There are so many different little customs that might vary from region to region, place to place. And as with all of driving, if you don't know, stop moving. Like, if you don't know what's happening, slow down. And, you know, Teresa, I would say, I don't want to say that your partner is just a jerk. He's a dangerous jerk. Because his presumption is... I am letting the world know I am keeping going no matter what, and my intentions are more important than theirs. And they should know better because they see my lights, and therefore I'm going to put myself and others into danger all the time, since my presumption is, I go, not you. Teresa's partner, I hope you take this in the same spirit with which I destroyed Will the Yaley earlier. I know you probably don't mean to be a jerk, but when you are putting other people at danger, because you are using and interpreting an ambiguous signal differently than most people are, but mostly just thinking you have priority to move over others, you need to rethink your driving. 
when you don't know what's happening, whether lights are flashing at you or not, slow down. And if you want to be a jerk about it, like say you're in that left lane and Jesse's driving too slow and you want to let him know you want to pass him because you're a jerk who's more important than him. Don't flash. You don't even care that I have a license plate frame that says super dad. I know. Like you want super dad to get out of your way. Okay. Sometimes you got to be a jerk in life. Just like my friend Jess Moss's mom told me when she kicked us out of the, out of the apartment that we were house sitting in because she wanted to use it. I know it's wrong, but I'm doing it anyway. Sometimes if you have to be a jerk, don't, don't be an ambiguous jerk by flashing your lights. Own it. Honk your horn. That is, that is vehicular jerkism at its finest. Horn honking. Honk your horn if you need to yell at someone. That's what it's there for. If you need to yell at someone or warn someone that you're there. Flashing your lights is not only ambiguous in terms of all its regionalism, a lot of people just won't see it. So if you're a jerk, own it. If you're a horn honker, honk it. Release your horn like the mighty goose. Rhea Butcher, by the way, is one of the great comics and podcasters and people of all over the place. Rhea rules. They have a new album out called Pull Yourself Up by Your Bootleg that's available now on a special thing. And you can follow Rhea at Rhea Butcher on Twitter. That's at sign R-H-E-A. B-U-T-C-H-E-R. Thank you, Rhea. Yeah, they're one of the coolest and the funniest. Here's something from Shiloh. I'd like to bring a case against my mother-in-law, Julie. She claims making nachos cannot be considered cooking because of the low level of skill and effort involved in preparing the dish. Yet she will attest that a dish like ceviche can be considered cooking because it requires more skill to put together. My husband Steve and I think both are cooking since they both require combining different ingredients together to form one dish. Despite our argument, she refuses to accept making nachos as cooking. If you find in my favor, I would ask you to demand she acknowledge that preparing nachos is cooking. Mm. Mm. Jesse, you make nachos? Sure. What's your nacho game? I like a pretty simple nacho. Tell me. I'm talking about refried beans, chips, cheese, and then, you know, sometimes I will top it with a a little something extra. Uh, We're talking about maybe some uh, green onions, Mm -hmm. a.k.a. scallions. Mm -hmm. We're talking about maybe a little salsa fresco or whatever kind of salsa is around the house. Usually a salsa verde is what I would keep around the house. Green Um, human blood. And then maybe some (laughs) avocado or some... Uh, guacamole, if if that's around, that's like super super nachos, nachos supreme. Nachos supreme have meat, John. Oh, excuse me, I apologize. Yeah, I am not from the Bay Area, a region of yeah. the Western United States. Super nachos have meat, John, and burritos do not have lettuce in them. Let me ask you a question: When you're doing your basic nachos, refries, chips, cheese, right? What, what's your, I mean, genuinely, I'm asking, I'm not asking you to prove a point. Like, I want to know, how do you do it? I cook them in my uh, countertop oven. Right. And, uh, you know, I set it to a medium baking temperature, 350 or something like that, and wait for the cheese to melt, at which time, if I've layered the beans correctly, the beans are warmed through. That's the thing. And, you, you know, layer. some of the chips brown a little. You got to let, like you put down a layer of chips and a layer of beans, then what? Yeah. A layer of chips? I'm, mm, no, I'm, I'm mostly just working on spreading out the beans. That's because mm-hmm. the beans will glop if you're not spreading them out. I see Jennifer Marmer's nodding. Yeah, she hates glops. Yeah, she's very anti-glop. But you said something yeah. very interesting. You say you cook them in your countertop oven. That's true. Is not just cooking? I mean, I think applying heat. And transforming the food are two elements of cooking. I think ceviche. Go on. I know where you're involves, going. Involves involves a substitute for heat, which is the transformation that the acid produces in the fish. Jesse, are you talking about denaturations of proteins? 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Sure. J. Kenji Lopez Alt. <laughs> Love you, Kenji, but I can read a thing too. Yeah. Yeah. Ceviche, there is a chemical change to the proteins in the fish when you add all that lime juice and lemon juice. It, 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 it's, it is chemically cooking. It is doing the same things to the proteins, denaturation. You can look it up. That is that what heat is doing to a protein in in food in protein food when you're cooking it when you're heating it when you're hotting it as I like to say. Mm-hmm. What else is cooking? What else isn't cooking? I think it's a stretch to say that making a smoothie or making a green salad are cooking. It's assembling, I, right? Yeah, that's more of an assembling. I think the transformation element is key, and I think the heat is central to it. But I but if somebody that said, if somebody said to me they were cooking and they made a salad, I wouldn't be mad about it. Yeah, I don't know what's going on with your mother-in-law, Shiloh, that she needs to make this this very, very small bore distinction. What, what's going on here, Jesse? I think that Shiloh's mother-in-law is proud of her cooking mm-hmm. and judgmental of Shiloh's. It could be. I mean, here's the thing. So I have to say, even though this is a, a hair split and kind of an, an annoying one, I have to say that I kind of side with Julie, the mother-in-law. Really? Yeah, I kind of do. You don't think nachos are cooking? Well, is hotting up something cooking? Yes. You're melting cheese. Is that enough of a transformation? You're melting the cheese. You're browning the chips. True. That's You're a- heating the beans. I know. If you heat the beans, I guess it's cooking. Yeah. I mean, I get the distinction that she's making, and I appreciate better now that you've articulated it this way, Jesse, that it may be that she's proud of her cooking and nachos seems like easy trash food. But I will say this. Maybe the problem is that Steve and Shiloh, when they make nachos, they're making trash nachos. Because nachos... Whether you call them cooking or not, they're an art form. They're easy to get wrong. They're difficult to get right. There's a balance. I mean, you know, you got to be spreading the beans or else you get the glop. You got to be layering the chips and the cheese in a careful way so that you get all of the stuff as or as much of the flavor combination as you can in one chip rather than just 17 dry chips and one that has a whole bunch of cheese on it, right? There's an art. There, there is art to it. And I would say that whether or not you technically call it cooking or not, and Jesse, by the way, thank you, my bill, if you have swayed me, it's cooking. I find in favor of Steve and Shiloh. But whether you call it cooking or not, there there is an artistry to it. And I think, you know, as equal an artistry as there is to making ceviche, which I have never done, but I'm going to give it a try. I want to give a shout out to my favorite nachos, John. Please. I grew up eating relatively complicated super nachos at El Toro Taqueria on Valencia Street in San Francisco. But my current favorite nachos are garbage nachos. Uh, I live in a neighborhood adjacent to a neighborhood in Los Angeles called Lincoln Heights. And there in Lincoln Heights, there is a place called Carnitas Michoacan. Right. And at Carnitas Michoacan, they make nachos with tortilla chips. Yeah. Pickled sliced jalapenos. Uh-huh. So far, I'm describing ballpark nachos. <laughs> okay. Uh, your choice of meat. Right. Carne asada, al pastor, whatever. And cheese sauce. That cheese sauce. And it is so good. <laughs> the cheese sauce <laughs> really is. It is so good. <laughs> that really, yeah. Because, I mean... I see and what I you're saying. I want to be clear. This isn't some Tex-Mex queso, blah, 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 blah. This is cheese sauce. Yeah. Right. Let me let me also be clear that when I say that, you know, there is garbage nachos in the world, I'm not saying that you need fancy ingredients to make good nachos. I'm not that much of a Yaley snob. What I'm saying is that there's a skill level to combining the ingredients, whatever they are, such that they are satisfying and good versus junk. And I would agree with you, Jesse, that if like the nachos that you get, if we ever go back to the movie theater, like movie theater nachos, which are, you know, 
they're 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 just a paper tray full of chips from a bag doused in cheese whiz they have their place but that's not cooking i would not call that cooking john what about dan chose what are those, those are the nachos that my college friend dan grayson used to make in his dorm room which were just chips with cheese on top of them microwaved uh cooking what about the, the cheese is transformed the That's cheese the is thing. transformed i'm not sure if you just heat it and there's no transformation i'm not sure i'm not sure what's but, happening there yeah if there's no but if there's browning or transformation i think to me let's take a break when we come back we hear again from rooney the eight-year-old with an email address plus 11 and a half year old zola in a new segment we call juvenile court Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing, and wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org slash newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Welcome back to the Judge John Hodgman podcast. We promised juvenile court, John. Yeah, Jesse, and I'll explain juvenile court in a second, but just one quick warning to anybody who's about to go out there and make ceviche or, you know, uh, uh, do yourself a favor. Don't squeeze limes in the sunshine. Don't squeeze, don't get lime juice on your hands in the bright glaring sun uh, because a chemical transformation will occur and you will get a perhaps terrible inflamed sunburn just wow. like Jonathan Colton did. Denaturation, oh, my friends. Boy. Wow. Insider info. Now, yes, earlier we were talking about Rooney, who wrote in last week on their own email address, eight years old, to bring a case against their dad who didn't want them to make their own avocado toast. And I was a little unnerved by an eight-year-old with an email address because eight-year-olds shouldn't be writing to 50-year-old podcast hosts. (laughs) Live and play in the sun. That said, I do know that we have a lot of listeners uh, who are young, and, and I'm really glad that they listen on their own or with their families. There, there are kids who have disputes. Kids are humans with agency who deserve to have have disputes in the world and, and see them settled. I can't open the doors of our court to eight-year-old live litigants. That's just not where we're going to go. That's a different kind of show. But if you're a kid who's got a dispute... Specifically, that's our sister show, Dr. Game Show. <laughs> they would open any door to any eight-year-old and be thrilled. I Absolutely. It's a great show. Absolutely. Yeah. But if you're a kid and you've got a dispute, you deserve to be heard. So go get your, go get your email or your quill and your parchment. You can write me a letter... Yeah. Pull your parchment out of your briefcase, Judge John Hodgman, listening eight-year-olds. Pull your parchment out of your briefcase, Judge John Hodgman, who was an eight-year-old. If you can take a moment away from watching Taxi. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Go ahead Go ahead, and, and from time to time, we will deliver you justice. So what's the first one we got on the docket? Here's a case from Zola, who is 11 and a half. I, Zola... 
child of Fred and Ashley, am an animal lover and would like to add a new creature to my collection. Currently, I have two guinea pigs, two rats, and a tank full of fish. We also have two family dogs. I have done my research and feel that a Madagascar hissing cockroach is the best option for my next critter friend. My parents disagree. I need help convincing them this is an easy-to-care-for, harmless creature with a short lifespan and a good option for me. Thank you, Zola. Jesse. Yeah. You have two dogs. Yeah, and of course, Finny as well. Don't forget Finny the fish. I did forget Finny the fish. Yeah, Finny's a bit of an afterthought. I'm going to be honest. I feel like I never knew about Finny the fish. Finny's a beauty. Swims around in that little tank of his, shows off those fins. Oh, is that why he's named Finny? No, he's named after Albert Finney. My son is just a really big Albert Finney fan. <laughs> Loves Cassavetti's movies. <laughs> Let the record show, as great an editor as Jennifer Marmer is, Je- there was no editing in Jesse Thorne's response. He went right to Albert Finney. There was no, <laughs> there was no, hang on, let me think of a good joke for this. There was no, even a pause. It's one of the greatest, <laughs> fastest, replies of all time thank you jesse for being so funny and great um all right madagascar hissing cockroach this is something that i would imagine could give some parents some pause because you got you got a couple of words in there that are red flags for most people who live in the united states especially in cities cockroach and hissing yeah. Uh, I think most people have nothing but positive associations with Madagascar. Sure, there's absolutely. Charming animated films. Right. Uh, unique flora and fauna of a beautiful island nation. Yeah. And well known for their hissing cockroaches. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's, it, it, at, least it, at least it's not trying to hide anything, the Madagascar hissing cockroach, right? It's right there yeah, in the it's name. It's doing its thing. It's yeah. not like it's going to surprise you with the hissing. Me? I'm just a Madagascar cockroach. Of course, adopt me. I'm the best. Yeah. I'm one of those Madagascar <laughs> silent cockroaches. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa, curveball. Right, exactly. You know, at least it's not going to take you by surprise when the hissing starts. That's good. It's good to know. But I can understand why there's some pause. I happen to know someone who has not one, not two, but a couple dozen of Madagascar hissing cockroaches, as you may know, as you well know, Jesse, because you've been a guest on my very occasional Instagram live show, Get Your Pets, where I interview people's cats and dogs and other pets. Uh, there, I have a guest, a frequent guest who comes on from time to time named Danny. She lives in Pittsburgh, what she calls hell with the lid off. Uh, she has a job, which is incredible, which is she and and a crew of other volunteers go out and clean up illegal dumping sites where people have just dumped trash illegally. Uh, and then she gathers interesting stuff that she finds from like just weird, interesting antiques and junky things and signs and stuff that she finds in these illegal dumping sites. And then she posts them on Twitter and uh, you can buy them and the money goes to good social causes there in Pittsburgh. I'll give you the link for that in a little bit. But Danny does all of that, plus has a turtle named Hayden, a rabbit named Ampersand, and all of these hissing cockroaches. Uh, and I asked Danny whether this, you know, it's like a hissing cockroach, is this a good pet for an 11 and a half year old based on your experience? And here's what Danny wrote back. Zola sounds like an awesome person with a great menagerie. I'll remind you, two guinea pigs, two rats, tank full of fish. Already sort of a William Randolph Hearst situation. Yeah, it's a zoo in there. Danny goes on to say, I can confirm that Madagascar hissing cockroaches are excellent low-maintenance pets. They're gentle, easy to care for, will not be a permanent part of your menagerie if you get just one. If you get more than one, you will have cockroaches in your life forever and ever. So, fair warning. I feed my roaches fish flakes, compost scraps, and a product called Fluker's Orange Cube Complete Cricket Diet. 
Okay, now we have to get one of these things. Yeah, exactly. Now we have a. I think we have because otherwise, this Fluker's orange cube that I've already ordered is going to go to waste. <laughs> I ordered the moment I heard the phrase Fluker's orange cube. You ordered. You ordered one. You paid money for it. My phone was out the second yeah. you got to Kurs, and it was hitting checkout by the time you got to Cube. I. I, I, I'm sorry that you spent the money on it because I'm going to make sure that there are sponsors going forward and we might get a free, <laughs> might get some free Fluker's Orange Cube complete cricket diets in the mail. Only a fool plays, pays for their Fluker's. No, I think, I, think, I think a smart person pays for the Fluker's because it's obviously the best complete cricket diet there is. The most complete and the best complete. And it comes in the trademark Fluker's Orange Cube. See, I'm already practicing. Get Cure on this immediately. New, new, new sponsor for the podcast. But I just want to point out that Danny con- concludes by saying, if Zola's parents are creeped out by hissing cockroaches, maybe they should consider getting a giant African millipede instead. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Danny, so much. Uh, please check out Trash for the uh, Danny's Trash for Treasures community. At at Danny Kramer 14. That's at D A N I K R A M E R 14. Jesse, you will love the stuff that Danny finds in the garbage in Pittsburgh. Only the fact that I had two children in the car and one of them was going to be late for school kept me from pulling over to the side of the road and pulling a piece of furniture out of one of those illegal dumping sites just this very morning, John. And all the proceeds from Trash Treasures for Community, of course, go to a whole bunch of really good social uh, social programs in, in Pittsburgh. Hell of a lid off. Uh, I love the suggestion of getting a giant African millipede because that is a great negotiation tactic, Zola. You should take that right away. If you're, if Zola, if your parents are like, I don't know that I can have a hissing cockroach in my life, say, it's fine. Judge John Hodgman ordered me to get a giant millipede instead. Yeah. All of a sudden, you got yourself free cockroach. You know what my therapist convinced me the other day? My, my process in therapy over the past decade or so has primarily been uh, my therapist convincing me uh, that certain parts of my childhood that I thought were fun independence were actually maybe a little neglectful. Mm-hmm. And uh, something that had not come up in therapy in the entire, in the many years that I had I had been therapized uh, was the fact that for quite a long time, I lived in the basement of my father and stepmother's house mm. when I was with them. I, my parents had split custody. And there was a, a crevice under the back door of the basement. And my door to my bedroom would get left open because it was the only way to get from the basement door to the upstairs was to go through my room. So people would just go through my room whenever they needed to do that and leave the door open. Mm -hmm. And at night, I started noticing there were like weird whitish translucent marks on my carpet. Mm. And it took me about six months or a year to figure out that every night slugs would slug their way through my room, then slug on out like nothing happened. And you know how I figured that out, John? No. Yeah, that's how I figured it out. It was dark in there, and that's how I figured it out. Oh. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry I stepped on your gerbil. (laughs) It's a callback, folks. Uh, John, didn't you say we also had a letter from Rooney? We do have a letter from Rooney. I had asked Rooney to write in to say, because I didn't know how Rooney wanted to prepare. I, I had made a joke that Rooney wanted to fill the little hollow in the avocado left by the pit with human blood and I made a joke that Rooney was a Dracula so I wanted to verify how does Rooney want to make their avocado and Rooney writes I want to peel the skin off the avocados and make slices but dad thinks he should cut it into small pieces with a spoon and scoop it out dad doesn't like knives but my mom gave me my knife license Rooney, you got your knife license. <laughs> Here's the thing. If you can get your own email address and mom is giving you a knife license, 
I think you should go ahead and cut that avocado into slices. But I want to see I want to see a copy of that knife license, Rooney. Rooney and Rooney's parents. I need to see a, a paper knife license signed by mom. And a real knife license, yeah. not one of the ones that you get at Legoland. Yeah, not a knife license you get uh, in a basement in Times Square in 1981. Work up a real good knife license. I want to see it laminated. Please send it in to Hodgman at MaximumFun.org so we can post it online. Is Rooney really peeling avocados with a knife? Because I support that. I think that's amazing. <laughs> Look, I mean, it's not the way I would for for me, I would I would scoop out the whole half of the avocado with a spoon before slicing it. And you know what I'd probably do is throw it into my avocado, my special avocado slash spam slicer that I got at the last uh, San Francisco Sketch Fest when we were staying in Japantown. It's this great oversized, it's like you know those those um hard-boiled egg slicers, they're like little harps where you can go bling yeah. on them. Sure. It's a bigger one, and it's just for avocados and spam. If you're going to make wow. wasabi, and you got this at the Japanese hardware store. Yeah, you know that place. You know what I'm talking oh, about. I love that Japanese hardware store. Uh, I love that Japanese hardware store since I was a child. Jesse, uh, we're gonna go to we're gonna go to Sketchfest. We're gonna we're gonna go stand in front of sousaphones on a on a live stage. We're gonna go to hardware stores. There's no end to what we're gonna be able to do. As a people, once we are through this, and we're going to get through it and make a new and better normal. But until then, Rooney's got their knife license. Go forth and do what you want to to avocados. The docket is clear. That's it for another episode of Judge John Hodgman. Our producer, the ever-capable Jennifer Marmer. Follow us on Twitter at Jesse Thorne and at Hodgman. We're on Instagram at Judge John Hodgman. Make sure to hashtag your Judge John Hodgman tweets, hashtag JJHO, and check out the Maximum Fun subreddit to discuss this episode. Submit your cases at MaximumFun.org slash JJHO or email Hodgman at MaximumFun.org. We'll talk to you next time on the Judge John Hodgman podcast. Please don't sue me, Marvel, for using that. This is the secret post credit sequence, an idea that I came up with. Um, and weirdly, Marvel also came up with the idea of dropping in extra content after the credits. Um, just like Isaac Newton and Gottfried Leibniz invented the calculus at the same time. It, it, it was just a coincidence. Simultaneous discovery, they call it. So don't sue me, Marvel. Just here, dropping some more content, giving people a little extra stuff. Hey, everybody, welcome to the post-credit sequence. Uh, some of you may know, not many, I would guess, that I do a Judge John Hodgman column in the New York Times Magazine every week for the past five years. And I do not think people who listen to the podcast know that this column exists. And I know that people who read the New York Times Magazine and print do not know that podcasts exist at all. So there's not a lot of overlap. But I wanted to share something with you. Uh, by the time you hear this, it will have just come out or will be about to come out. I don't know when they have it scheduled for. A little short column in which, um, spoiler alert perhaps, I, I rule against a woman named Krissa uh, who, uh, who had texted her friend Ken that she could not join Ken for dinner but Ken went to the restaurant anyway because he claimed that Chris's text was unclear. And it was. But when I let her know that I was ruling in the magazine, she was upset because she wouldn't get to share a piece of audiovisual evidence with you, which was her video apology to Ken after the fact. And while my ruling stands, Krissa, this evidence is so compelling I have to share it with you, the listeners, because this evidence is not Chrissa speaking. It's, well, let's just say it comes from a little website called Cameo. Hey, Ken, it's James Cosmo here, Lord Commander Mormont of the Night Watch. Uh, your good friend Chrissa got in touch with me and asked me to send a message to you. Now, she tells me that um, uh, she had to cancel uh, a meeting uh, with you and you didn't get her text and went to the restaurant that is awful that is I've done that it's 
It's the most embarrassing thing. Anyway, Chrissa wants to send you absolutely abject apologies. And so she should. Um, that's the thing with texts. You don't know if people are going to get them, you know. Should have phoned. Anyway, um, she has taken the time and the expense to send this message. So she is obviously very contrite. So please forgive her and you guys go out and have dinner together. Anyway, that's my message from the Lord Commander. You take care, Ken. All the very best and God bless you. Bye-bye. Uh, so there you have it. Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, uh, Jorah Moramont, has forgiven Krissa. And how, who am I to speak against uh, the, the brothers uh, of the Night's Watch? So even though I have found against you, Krissa, in none other than the magazine of the paper of record, the New York Times magazine, where Judge John Hodgman appears every week, but I will also absolve you. But why should I absolve you? when instead I could get Nas from Love Island to do it. Here's Nas. Hello to all the Judge John Hodgman listeners. It's Naz Majid here from Love Island. I hope everyone is doing well. Now I just want to give a special shout out to one listener in particular who goes by the name of Chrissa. Even though Judge John Hodgman ruled against you, getting James Cosmo off of Game of Thrones to apologise to Ken on Cameo was amazing. I'm a massive fan of Game of Thrones and I've seen the Cameo. I've seen the apology on your behalf and it is absolutely brilliant. I love it. Apologising is an essential life skill and by the looks of it, Chrissa, you're absolutely killing it. However, despite me saying all of this, I've reviewed the case and I'm very much so team Chrissa. Sorry to go against you on this one, Judge. But I feel like, Ken, why, if you felt like there's any form of vagueness, any lack of clarity, why would you turn up to that restaurant without double checking or triple checking before leaving? Hopefully you can use this as a learning curve going forward. Chrissa, I feel like on another day in another courtroom, you might have gotten away with it. But I digress. Lastly, I just want to give a massive shout out to the Judge John Hodgman podcast. All the listeners, gear yourself up, strap yourself in for Max Fun Drive in May. But yeah, thank you so much, guys. Everyone take care and enjoy the rest of the podcast. Well, uh, thank you, Nas, my hero of Cameo, for coming through again. You've sent some wonderful messages to my family. Now to the whole Judge John Hodgman uh, listenership. Uh, thank you for undermining my ruling, I guess. Wow. That was all right. I guess you got your own judge show now. You're going to have your own judge show on cameo. It's probably going to go very, very far. Nas, I wish you the best. I wish you only well, Nas. And as I said to you over the text feature of, uh, cameo, anytime you want to be on judge John Hodgman as a guest bailiff or friend of the court or anything, you know, the door is always open and I look forward to your replying to my text, Nas. All right, end of post-credit sequence. I, uh, why did I make myself do this extra homework every week? Bye-bye. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.